Welcome to our Ecclesia study where we investigate the claims of the Bible. For many people, one of the main deterrents to accepting the teachings of Jesus is the noticeable disconnect between what Jesus taught and what many self-professed Christians say and do. As we investigate the Bible, we look into how C.I. Schofield and his reference Bible have influenced literally thousands of evangelical pastors and millions of evangelical Christians into fervently believing that the modern state of Israel is a fulfillment of biblical prophecy and should be revered and supported without question in spite of its undemocratic and inhumane treatment of both Christian and Muslim Palestinians for over 60 years of occupation. Our study leader is Mark Horton, president of Ultra Clean Corporation and a diligent student of the Bible. Joining Mark are four other directors of We Hold These Truths. Chuck Carlson is the founder of We Hold These Truths and editor of Pharisee Watch and the Unheralded News. Travis Steele is the owner of Steele Engineering. Chuck McCollum is the owner of Oakshade Development and a self-described recovering dispensationalist. And Tom Compton is a retired sales engineer and your announcer. Our reader is We Hold These Truths faithful volunteer and dramatist Leslie Fort. Thanks for joining in our quest. Today on our Christ Followers podcast, we're in the book of John. We had an introduction in our first part last week, and today we're going to be continuing on. We have Mark Horton on the line. Hello, Mark. Yes, hello, Tom. Would someone care to... Lord, thank you for allowing us to come together again to study your word. We know that it's important to study to learn, to understand what you have given us, and to apply it. And we thank you for Mark and his faithfulness to this study, and bless this time together, in Jesus' name, amen. 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 All right, well, we had some introductory discussions about the Gospel according to John last week, and we are ready to look at the prologue in a little more detail, because it is really a summation of the book. It's a preview of what we're going to study or what the life of Jesus should be teaching us. Uh, The principles are given here in the prologue, and this is really also an excellent summation of the entire New Covenant and the Bible at large. I think we might have mentioned last week that when they translate the Bible into a new language, the Gospel according to John is usually the very first book that they translate because it can cover so much material. Let's read the first three verses of chapter 1, please. Chapter 1 of the Gospel according to John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being by Him, and apart from Him nothing came into being that has come into being. All right, very good. The Bible begins back in Genesis 1 with the verse, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And so we see the the intentional connection between these verses in John and Genesis 1.1. But it's specifically referring to the nature of the Messiah, as we'll see. In the prologue, he is called the Word, but the Greek word is logos. Now, we have kind of an English version of that today. 
What what does logos come call to mind to anyone there in the studio? Logo, yes. All right. Yeah, it's important because word is not a very complete translation of this word logos, and I had to do a lot of study before it finally started dawning on me what this really meant. But the logo, the idea of the logo actually is is helpful, I think. What is a logo supposed to do for a company? Well, it creates an image and something that people can remember fairly easily. So when they see it, they can identify identify it. In the case of a certain hamburger chain, people can start salivating. <laughs> yeah, well, excellent. That's, that's, this is exactly I, what I was hoping to bring out to kind of help us understand what this Greek word logos uh, meant. The, apparently, the... The Stoic philosophers had a, a similar concept of uh, in in using the word uh, logos, but I think a better translation instead of word is self manifestation, and that's a big word. So obviously that's why they didn't translate it that way. But the what uh, God could use to represent Himself to mankind is the logos just like the company uses the logo to represent itself to mankind. God used the logos to manifest himself, to make himself known. Uh, we don't use manifest uh, very often in common language unless we're talking about a truck shipment, but um, to be made known is the way I would uh, just translate the common usage of it. Does that make sense? Yes. Yes. Okay. Um, so... The self-manifestation, or the way God could let himself be known to man, was through the Word or the Logos. And then he's going to explain this, that this self-manifestation wasn't something God thought up as an afterthought. It was, it's always been him, it's always been part of him. It was with him in the beginning, it was with him, but it was him. They were one and the same, they were of the same essence. The same was in the beginning with God. There was a great division in the early church, um, I don't know, in the second, third centuries. Uh, a, a bishop named Arius basically made the pronouncement that Jesus was a created a being, that God needed him to serve a purpose and spoke him into existence at some point. And, and he explained that there was a time once before Jesus existed, and this became known later as the Arian heresy, but at the time Arius had such great influence that he basically swept the entire world with his teaching, and anyone that uh, resisted him was uh, crushed, burned, or destroyed. I, I'm not sure the exact methods that they used. His uh, most significant opponent was Athanasius, who actually had to hide in a cave for a number of years to avoid being uh, put to death. And so we can presume that there were people who were thinking that way even at the time that this gospel account was written. And this account is written, amongst other things, apparently to dispel any concept that Jesus was a created being um, and was not fully equal to God himself. So I, I don't know if that history was of any benefit, but... Uh, you, I always uh, wondered what the Arian conspiracy was. Yeah, that was oh. the Arian heresy is what it's usually called. Um, heresy, thank you. Yeah. And uh, our mutual friend, Will Grigg, named one of his sons Athanasius. Uh, <laughs> being a great history lover. Um, 
it, it makes some sense. So we need to understand the importance of this. I mean, this is, I guess, what you'd call core theology or the study of God. My cousin in Texas teaches this by having a big beaker of purple liquid up on on the lectern in front of the class, and then he kind of makes it disappear and replaces it with a red liquid beaker and a blue liquid beaker. And he said, now, we can't really pour this purple liquid out into a red and a blue component, but God did this when the Word was born into the world or made incarnate, put in the flesh. And this is going to be a a repeated theme uh, in the Gospel account of John, is this idea that God came down to be with us. Too many Christians, I think, today have been caught up in this futuristic mentality that our dispensational and Zionist friends and relatives have, and I think it's infected many of the other churches, that we don't really receive the power of God or the real blessings of being a Christian until we die. And so there's almost this death wish or uh, waiting for the rapture, and uh, you don't want to do anything here. You just kind of are a spectator. You sit in the pew, and you just kind of wait until you die to see if you get to heaven or not. But this is not the story that I'm finding uh, in the Bible here uh, when I really study it without just listening to uh, present-day religious leaders and teachers. We find in the Gospel of John that, well, I'm actually getting ahead of the story, the miracle is not that we get to be with God when we die. The miracle is that God is with us now while we're alive on the earth. So this is the word, the self-manifestation of God uh, was, as we'll see, Jesus Christ. Another word being uh, Emmanuel, God with us? Exactly. That, that, that very word is telling the whole story. We have all of the history of Israel with God dwelling in their midst in the tabernacle and then later in the temple and then later in the second temple, which was empty, which God's presence never filled in a miraculous sense as it had done in the tabernacle and Solomon's temple. It was empty. The throne room, the Holy of Holies, was empty, and they were waiting for God to come and take his throne in Israel. And that was not fulfilled until Jesus walked onto the Temple Mount. (laughs) But instead of joyously receiving what they had been waiting for for hundreds of years, well, that's the rest of the story. That's what we'll be studying. (laughs) So I I find it really interesting and full of irony. And and, uh, this book has got all this irony and symbolism and and things in it uh, it's just been a delightful study uh, just to get ready to to go through it with you all on these podcasts all right so we talked uh, here about verses 1 through 3 that he, there was never a time when the word did not exist he is eternal from ages eternal no beginning and no end the alpha and the omega of the same nature as god he is the essence of God. He is the the way that God has chosen to reveal himself to mankind. And we're going to see a lot more detail on that. No man can see God and live, we're told. Moses saw like the afterglow of God walking by, and it, it left him 
shining for as long as he lived, just seeing that afterglow. So coming in the flesh as Jesus is the only way that mankind could really see God and could understand God. But again, there'll be more detail on that as we proceed through the book. So, And we're going to see a subtle contrast throughout this book between the original creation of Genesis and the new creation, which was to be the work of the gospel and of Jesus coming to earth, the new creation, a spiritual creation. All right, let's read verses 4 and 5, please. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. All right, so uh, life is obviously something that we all uh, grope for. Everyone wants to go to heaven when they die, and so they're looking for for that, and they're using trying to use the churches uh, with mixed results, I guess. I'm not sure for this, but this is not really talking about physical life. If the gospel was about uh, physical healing, it would be a complete disaster because how many Christians have physically died since the first century? Would anyone hazard to guess? hundred <laughs> percent. Yeah, hundred yeah, percent. So yeah, whatever that number is. So the the gospel cannot be about physical healing. It, it is talking about spiritual life, uh, and we'll, we'll see that over and over in this book. That this spiritual life was the light of men and. God is compared to light over and over again. The first day in Genesis, uh, that's in verse 3, it says, Then God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw the light that it was good, and God divided the light from the darkness. So the uh, this is still bouncing off of that creation account in uh, Genesis. The life was good. The life was the light of men. God is compared to the light over and over again, and Jesus is going to use that uh, in this story as uh, his work progresses. Light, very important. The image of the the new creation is is the image of a temple that needs no sun or moon because God is the light thereof. And again, the futurists are convinced this is talking about heaven, but the text is very clear in Revelation that this is the new temple that has come down out of heaven, it is not heaven, and that God is dwelling with man, or as uh, Emmanuel, as was said a few minutes ago, God is with us. So we can experience this life now. We can experience the spiritual power of God dwelling and living in us now. We don't have to wait until we die. There's plenty of work for us to do to exercise these powers right now. And I'm sure we hold these truths could give you some practical opportunities to develop this uh, on a periodic basis but this is a, this is a great message i mean this is a this is a world changing message that god is dwelling with us now the light the life are are available to us right now now verse 5 talking about this light shining in the darkness kind of a take there on genesis 1 again but the darkness didn't understand what was happening and I always think, you know, of the of the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees waiting, waiting supposedly for God to come and dwell in the new temple in Jerusalem. And Jesus walks there onto the Temple Mount and starts teaching, and they couldn't put the pieces of the puzzle together. 
And we'll see a great example of that when we get to the third chapter of how one of the Pharisees brought Jesus to him by night because he didn't want people to know he was meeting with him and tried to figure all this out. And he was so confused, even with a good and honest heart, he couldn't even figure it out. So the ones that weren't quite so upright uh, never even never even had a clue. So I, I always think of that uh, when I see this phrase, the darkness could not understand what was happening when the light came to shine amongst men. All right, any thoughts or questions on the first five verses? I was thinking when Jesus came to earth, it flies in the face of Roman and Greek mythology, which was considered religion back then, to think that God has the word, was with God and always existed. He didn't come from Zeus. He didn't come from some created being, I'm excited about Christ's eternal light in the face of darkness. And it says the darkness over, overcame it not in the King yeah. James. Oh, yeah, that's the old King James here. Let's see. Overcame it not. Well, I can't pronounce this. Catalambano, uh, to apprehend, obtain, comprehend, find, obtain, perceive, or overtake. Um, so the darkness of... Uh, there's two possible meanings here. The darkness was not powerful enough to overtake the light. Light and dark are not equal. Now, the yin and yang symbol in Asia is showing coexistent and equal light and dark in balance, and that's the symbol in the center of the South Korean flag, uh, yin and yang. But just a quick reflection on the relative powers of light and darkness shows that a tiny amount of light can overcome an infinite amount of darkness. And so the the darkness was not able to overtake or overcome the the light. That's that's one way the Greek could be translated. The other way, of course, is just that they couldn't understand it or comprehend it. But either, either way would certainly be true and consistent with other scripture. Or any other thoughts in? All right. Then let us read verses 6 through 8, please. There came a man sent from God whose name was John. He came for a witness that he might bear witness of the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came that he might bear witness of the light. All right. And John is mentioned several times here in the gospel according to John. He's never described as John the Baptist or John the Immerser because John is never used as a name for anyone else in this gospel. The only other John that figures in the gospel story is John, the son of Zebedee, who is supposed to be the author of this, or is the most likely author, and he was humble and or wishing to remain anonymous uh, when he wrote this, so perhaps. So, John is just mentioned as John because the other John's not mentioned. There's no need to distinguish him as John the Immerser. The word Baptist is the Greek word, and the King James translators being Catholic uh, for most of their lives and Anglican uh, at the moment they were doing the translation, they were part of an institutional religion that practiced sprinkling for baptism, and if they had translated it into English, they would have gotten into trouble. So they just left it. A uh, very uh, uh, diplomatic move on their part. They just left the Greek word without translating it to avoid 
getting into trouble or causing any problems. But baptismo is to cleanse by dipping or to cleanse by immersion is the the literal meaning of it. And the immersion is what we see practiced in the Bible, and this was practiced until, I don't know, the 600s or something when the Catholic Church substituted sprinkling, which they first did for terminally ill people and then they did for dead people, uh, where they would dig bones up and sprinkle water on them and stuff. And then eventually they just realized that it would be simpler and easier to do that for everybody. So um, that's the kind of the history on that. That's why the uh, Reformation churches then, such as Lutheran, Methodist, and Presbyterian, uh, all sprinkled water on youth because they did not translate the, the word, what is the word? Uh, baptismal. Baptismal, yeah. baptismal properly. Well, right, it just carried through. It carried through, uh, presumably, through um, practice, huh? Tyndale's translation, and then it carried through the King James uh, Bible, and, uh, you know, no one's ever got around to fixing it. It's it's like locked in granite now. Uh, so we have a word baptized that's not used in common conversation because it's actually a, a word and concept from Koinoi Greek from the first century that, for political reasons, was never translated and so it has a unique religious meaning, but when it was used in the Bible, it was a common, ordinary word that just meant to cleanse by dipping or, or you know, you dunk something into running water to clean it, and that was what that word uh, conveyed. So, anyway, the, uh, we're, I, we're talking about a word that's not in the text, so that's kind of a, a no-no, but I couldn't resist. I'm sorry. <laughs> Real quickly, Mark, uh, you were saying they start, started sprinkling, sprinkling corpses or digging up graves. Did they ever immerse? Did the Catholic Church ever immerse, or was it always sprinkled? Well, rem- th- there was no date when the Catholic Church became the Catholic Church. It, it yeah, was a, okay. It was a slow evolution. Well, I guess you could say when Constantine legalized religion, it went from being a, a group of people that were like family that met in homes to a big government thing in government buildings. So right. that was the huge change was Constantine. And uh, even th- then they, they immersed for 200 more years or so. I, I've forgotten the exact date. When oh, I- that was my question. Yeah, yeah. okay. Uh-huh. So, yeah, there, it was it was significantly later, but I don't okay. remember the date. I did know okay. it one time. Thank you. Yeah. Okay, so, John back to our story, figures prominently in here. There had been no prophets for 200, 300 years. Um, Malachi was, I guess, the last one, and the voice of prophecy had been silent. There was kind of a a surge of apocalyptic writings that came out of the Judean community in the 100 years before uh, Christ, but no real prophets until John came. And the people, the common people, flocked to him because they knew that he was a prophet. We studied uh, details of this when we studied uh, Matthew and Luke. John doesn't get into the nitty-gritty of the details, but John was calling the leaders of Judea bad names, and he was basically threatening them with imminent destruction and being burned by fire. And anyway, it wasn't really pleasant for those people, but the common people he received gladly, and he was immersing them in the Jordan River to symbolically cleanse them, to prepare them for the Messiah. And he came 
to bear witness of the light that all through him might believe. So the, we had the word, now we have the light. We're using lots of symbolism already to talk about the Messiah here, and we've only gotten to the first seven verses. John was telling them that, that this was coming, and there, there was a particular urgency for the Judean people because they had uh, the clock was ticking for them. They had one generation to repent and to accept Jesus as the Messiah before their nation was utterly destroyed from the face of the earth. And so there, there was a real urgency to them, and they got the first chance. Uh, the, John was preaching to them, and then Jesus was preaching to them, and then the apostles were preaching to them as well for a number of years before they even started going out to the other nations. And, and I believe that was because there was this real urgency and a limited timeline for Palestine to uh, survive uh, before the cataclysmic events that, that occurred around the year A.D. 67 to 70. So he was there to prepare the way, but he was not that light, but he was the one who testified about the light. Bear witness is this uh, Greek word, martureo, which I, I don't know how to pronounce in Greek, but it was, this is the idea of, of giving evidence bearing record, giving testimony, give an honest report uh, or witness. So he was not, and, and we'll see later in the account that he was directly asked by the Pharisees who, he, who was he, and he didn't claim to be anybody important. He didn't even claim to be as important as he really was. So that was John. He was a very, very humble individual. All right, so let's read here verses 9 through 11, please. There was the true light which, coming into the world, enlightens every man. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. All right, so again, starting at the end there, his own did not receive him. And this is, uh, this is actually the word for your own house. He came to his own house like his own family, when you say your household or your house, the house of Carlson, uh, that's kind of the idea that's being conveyed here. He came to his own family, and they did not receive him. And, of course, we know, we know this is true because we've heard the story before, but we see kind of a parallel to what we were talking about earlier, that uh, the darkness couldn't overcome him and or couldn't understand him. I think there's an allusion there to particularly the Judean leadership trying to destroy him, rejecting him, and trying to destroy him. In that earlier verse there, in, in verse 5, it's just stated explicitly here in verse 11. So in contrast to John, who was just the witness of the true light, the word or the light was the true light that lights every man that comes into the world. And so again, we see obvious figurative language, we look back 2,000 years, there's no real record uh, except in some medieval paintings of Christians having a brilliant halo uh, glowing around them as they walk through the earth. Although, well, some people claim there's an aura and some people get so full of goodness from studying about God that you can see their aura and that's where those halos came from, those medieval paintings. But there may be something to that, I don't know. But, but for the most part, we can see that we can't look at a 
busy street of people walking and pick out the Christians or the Christ followers because they have a big glow about them. This light is a spiritual light, not a physical light. The healing is a spiritual healing, not a physical healing that's being discussed here. The Word is the true spiritual light that spiritually lights every person, every human being in the world. Now, this the King James translates the Greek word for land as world, which causes great confusion because oftentimes things are talking about the end of the world. They're really talking about the end of the land of Palestine in the first century. But this is not that word. G, this is the word cosmos, which we're familiar with because it's used in English uh, as well now. The orderly creation, the entire world. So this is a much broader word than the word land, which is mistranslated as world in the King James Bible. So it could read like, uh, there was the true light which, coming into the cosmos, enlightens every man. Yes, uh, that's my understanding of it, yes. And then uh, verse 10 uses the same word, cosmos, the orderly creation, uh, the universe, the world. It's not really talking about the the global rock that is the planet Earth, but it's mm-hmm. talking about the the orderly creation, the cosmos, almost mm-hmm. like we would use it in English today. Yeah. He came into the cosmos which he had made, and the cosmos just knew him not. Did not know him, yes. Yeah, did not. Yet the world did not know him. The world knew him not. So we see a lot of repetition here, I think, so there's a great emphasis in the gospel, according to John, of, of witnessing the, the true light, of understanding the true light, and, and we'll see this kind of stressed in the stories that follow here. The difference between those who could discern spiritual wisdom, spiritual light, and those who could not or chose not to try to discern the true word or manifestation from God. And then 11, which we already talked about, just kind of sums that up. His own household, his own family could not even understand uh, the message here. So perhaps we shouldn't be so aghast that so many of our countrymen today are hopelessly confused on these matters. All right, any any thoughts on verses 9 to 11? Well, uh, uh, just it's, it's the same thing you're saying is that when he came to his own, back then a man's family was an extension of that person, and everything he owned was part of who he was or associated with him. So this is a, a tragedy in a nutshell. I might add he, a question to what Leslie just said. Was he referring to the Israelites? In any way, do you think there's any possibility he was referring to Israelites when he talked about his own? Oh, absolutely, I think he was. The Judeans, who were the remnant of Israel, and and always referred to to each other as Israelites. Judean was what other people called them. They called themselves Israelites, and all of the remaining Israelites were known as Judeans to the Romans and the Greeks and everybody else, no matter whether they were from the tribe of Judah or Levi or the few that survived from the other tribes as well. So again, we, we do see a tragedy, and we're going to see more and more that this tragedy 
goes way beyond what the prologue. The prologue is an introduction of the tragedy, but the, that tragedy is a major theme of the whole Bible and of the New Testament, uh, that the, the, the people that God had chosen to be his own, to be his own family, as a husband would take a wife, as a father would nurture a son, those are the two, we saw those relationships, remember, in Hosea over and over again. That's the kind of family relationship that existed, and uh, Judea would have nothing to do with it, or at least the leadership would not. All right, well, let's, um, let's read 12 and 13, which gets us to a very good break point. This is kind of the first half of the prologue here, finishes at verse 13. But as many as received him... To them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Wow, this this is the story right here, 12 and 13. So it's not that we have the power to maybe become sons of God when we die. It is the fact that if we believe on his name, and that's more than just acknowledging that, oh, yes, Jesus of Nazareth was the Son of God. I mean, that would be an acknowledgement, but believing on his name also involves fully understanding his authority and his power, his nature, that he is God, that he was God, that he is God, that he's always existed. That's the kind of belief that John is referring to, and this is the belief that leads to this spiritual birth, uh, which is explained there in verse 13. It's not a birth uh, in the physical sense uh, from the womb with afterbirth and blood and gore and all that good stuff associated with childbirth, nor of the will of the, the flesh or the will of man, which is talking about sexual desire, uh, just you know, flat out. It's not a birth that, that's a result of sexual desire or of a physical birth from the womb, but this is a birth from God. And chapter 3 is going to go into detail. That's when Jesus is having this uh, <laughs> secret meeting with one of the Pharisees. So th- this is really, this is the exciting news, that the old family of God rejected him, but anyone who will understand the spiritual message that John is about to relate, anyone who believes that spiritual message can become the new family of God, and God will dwell with this new family on the earth as long as we live, and then, I mean, when we die physically, we're still alive because we are with God, we are in God, we are His own, we are His family, and we have now, we, we didn't exist from before time, but we have eternal life and have no ending. So it's a very positive story. Anyway, that's, that's kind of right. And now he's going to start over at verse 14 and tell the whole story again uh, in a briefer form. And then that's going to lead right into the narrative account. So this is a convenient place to break. Any, any last thoughts or comments here on 12 and 13? Well, no, thank you, Mark. That was excellent once again. Very good. And we look forward to continuing on in our study here. Thanks for listening. Be sure to tell a friend about our podcast. And please visit our website, whtt.org. 
you will find a wealth of information and resources like the latest Pharisee Watch and unheralded news articles. Also, you can order our new video, Christian Zionism, The Tragedy and the Turning, Part 1. Even though this video is copyrighted, we don't mind if you copy it as long as you copy all of it. Then you can educate your friends and acquaintances about the dangers of Christian Zionism. Start small, think big, and press on toward the straight gate.